0: Here, we're glad you're out tonight. We're studying biblical separation. Last time we talked about personal separation, separation that's primary. When you make a decision based on the scriptures, that you're going to separate yourself from something. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about separation that is secondary. And before we get into that, let's look to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word, for your doctrine, for your people. We pray your blessing on this time tonight. We pray that we would just continue to grow uh, in the Lord and in the word so that the separation decisions that we make are truly God-honoring and biblical. We do not want to be some fanatical legalist, but we also want to be sensitive to your word and will in various contexts. So give us the wisdom to live life that way, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when we talk about the subject of uh, secondary separation, we're talking about the idea of separating oneself from others who are consistently involved with those who are not solid in their faith. Uh, If you start uh, hanging out with someone that is uh, just theologically distorted, and we're going to have a discussion on that uh, perhaps even later tonight, but that can be detrimental to your own spiritual uh, welfare. But uh, let me see if I can illustrate a point uh, that, uh, that I think makes a great illustration of this. Years ago, the great Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, was visiting Dallas Theological Seminary, and he spoke in a chapel service, and they asked him if he would be willing to give a lecture in one of the classes, which he decided to do, and he opened it up to the students for a question and answer time, and Barnhouse was asked this question, Dr. Barnhouse, how do you justify your continued presence within the Presbyterian denomination in light of the apostasy into which it has fallen? Later, A student wrote Dr. Barnhouse and asked him the same question, and here's what Barnhouse said in his written reply. Thank you for your letter, which I read with great interest. Concerning my affiliation with the Presbyterian Church, I take the position that come out from among them and be ye separate does not refer to the denomination, rather to pagan temples. My basis for staying in is in Revelation 3.2, where we are told to strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. The Lord told me to feed his lambs and his sheep, and I'm not given the right to make specifications about the fold in which the sheep are to be found. For better or for worse, more than 90% of the Lord's sheep are in denominations. I, as a Bible teacher, must stay in and feed them. Now, I discussed that matter with Mr. Miles years ago, who knew of Dr. Barnhouse, and he reminded me that Dr. Barnhouse the Presbyterian church in Philadelphia was a very fundamental church. And even though uh, it was uh, in the Presbyterian denomination, it did not go along with the Presbyterian denomination. And Barnhouse himself filled the church through the exposition of the scriptures, and the guy who replaced him was James Montgomery Boyce, and he was another Bible expositor, and they kept that church a very fundamental church. Furthermore, in the case of Dr. Barnhouse... Uh, he misinterprets Revelation 3.2 because Revelation 3.2 was written to a true church, not to an apostate church, Uh, therefore remaining in an apostate denomination, I don't think is something that you can sanction from the text that Barnhouse actually uh, cited. Now, there are a couple of great men in church history who broke away from the Presbyterian denomination because they saw its apostasy and its evil. They saw that it was moving away from the word of God. They did not want their name connected to it anymore. One of them, of course, was Lewis Sperry Chafer. Lewis Sperry Chafer, who was in the Presbyterian movement, who uh, basically said, "I I cannot in any way support this because it is moving in a way contrary to the word of God. So he made a break and founded Dallas Theological Seminary. I think the other guy in history who's well known was J. Gresham Machen who was actually teaching at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he saw it starting to depart from the scriptures and to depart from Sound Doctrine, and he went and confronted uh, the leadership of Princeton Theological Seminary. He said, you're moving away from God. You're moving away from the Word of God. And uh, instead of them taking a stand the right way, Machen said, you know what, I can no longer be part of this. So as a result, he left. He went to Philadelphia and founded Westminster Theological Seminary. But here's the point of the illustration. Some people would not necessarily associate with Dr. Barnhouse because of his association with the Presbyterian Church. It was not Barnhouse that was sinful, not even was his church sinful, but it was because of the Presbyterian denomination which was becoming corrupt. And for that reason, some people said, we'll have nothing to do with him. That's what we mean by secondary separation. Now, there's no question that it is biblically possible to link ourselves to someone that would give us a classification of being sinful rather than holy. Go to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, please. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, "...do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin." It's possible that you could put someone in a position who has no business being in the position and actually be responsible for putting something sinful in the context of even the church. I mean, that is the context of this, that you are uh, putting your hands suddenly, you are putting someone suddenly or quickly into a position of responsibility. Uh, They don't necessarily know what they believe. They don't necessarily even have a right walk with God. But you could just put them into the position and as a result do something very detrimental to not only your church but to your own life. You could actually uh, uh, be affected in an unholy way. Now the second separation type is what we would call ecclesiastical separation. Ecclesiastical separation. We, we talked about last time the uh, personal separation. Now we're going to talk about ecclesiastical separation. Under ecclesiastical separation, there are two uh, headings. First of all, ecclesiastical separation from individuals. Like it or not, the Bible teaches this, so we're going to have to crawl through this. Uh, in ecclesiastical separation from individuals, the entire church supposedly, or should, make a decision, I'm going to separate myself from that individual. I'm going to cut off a relationship from that individual. The Bible makes it clear there are times, there are times when those kinds of separations need to be implemented. And as near as I can determine in, in wading through all of this, uh, it is the responsibility of the elders to determine when such a separation would be necessary, and it would become the responsibility of the congregation to carry out the separation. So the elders would have the responsibility to determine when it's uh, to be, and then the congregation would have the responsibility to carry it out. Now, the leadership of a church is a high and holy assignment that has been given to them by the Lord. God has ordered and given them the responsibility to guard their flock. I want you to go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You'll notice in verse 17, we read, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So Paul is talking to the elders of the church. Now notice what he tells them in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves... Will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, this assignment has been given to the elders of the church, and they are to guard their flock. They are to be on the lookout for savage wolves that could come from without or from within, and they could actually start speaking against doctrine that's true and sound, and they're to keep their eyes open for uh, those kinds of wolves that could do great damage. And when the elders spot those wolves, and we're going to talk about that process in just a few moments, they're going to have to do something about it. They can't just let a wolf go on and just devour the sheep with their distorted concepts. They're going to have to address the issue. And when it reaches a point where they have to address the issue, when it reaches a point where the elders determine, you know what, we've got to separate ourselves from this guy, we've got to separate ourselves from this person because they can do damage to the ministry and the, uh, and the wonderful work of God, then when that happens, the congregation has the responsibility to obey the leadership. To obey the leadership. If the leadership is saying, look, we have, we have waited through this, we have prayerfully uh, analyzed this, and we need to make a break because this person is detrimental to the ministry of the Lord, then the congregation has the responsibility to obey the leadership and say, all right, We're with you, we're going that way because you're protecting us, you're looking out for our welfare. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says, obey them that have the rule over you uh, so that they'll give an account of you and it'll be a good account of you uh, in response to to, uh, to these kinds of things. Now under the heading of ecclesiastical separation from individuals, it is very clear that God expects his church to separate themselves from unrepentant habitually sinning believers. That's who God expects us to separate ourselves from. Unrepentant, habitually sinning believers. If there is an unrepentant, habitually sinning believer that's just given over to sin, it is the responsibility of the elders, it is the responsibility of the church to make a separation decision. That we are going to cut our losses, we're going to separate ourselves Uh, from this particular uh, individual or person. Now, there are four major passages of Scripture that specifically address this kind of topic that we're talking about. And, And when you study a biblical separation, you have to come to this because the Bible teaches on these subjects. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 18. So let's go to Matthew chapter 18. There are only two times in the book of Matthew where the church is brought up. The reason for that is Matthew's not a book that's about church doctrine, for the most part, or church polity. It's a book that's designed to present Jesus Christ as king of the Jews, king of Israel. But there are two occasions where Christ is discussing things, where he says there's going to be a church that's coming up. I'm not even sure the disciples connected what he was saying when he said this, but there will be a church age come into play, and when the church age comes into play, In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church. And he he refers to the church here again in Matthew 18. Now notice verse 15. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church... And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now let me tell you, what that verse about two or three gathered my name really means in the context. It means that you've gone to an erring brother and you've confronted an erring sinning brother who absolutely digs his heels in and says, I don't care what you tell me, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to your counsel. I don't care what you're telling me about the word of God. You tell that to the church. You cut off fellowship from this brother in the Lord. And then two or three probably in leadership roles, begin to pray. One of the things that these people pray is, as we'll see from Paul, for the destruction of the flesh. That's the context of when two or three are praying, you are, you are laying up this in heaven. This is being bound in heaven. In other words, this is not a light matter when all of a sudden some erring brother decides, I am not going to respond to the voice of God that's coming to me through the people of God as they tell me, look, you're moving in a sinful direction you need to get your life back on track. And so in that context, you go to a brother privately. If that doesn't work, you go to the brother plurally. If that doesn't work, you tell it publicly to the church. And if that doesn't work, there is this prayer that's made that binds this in heaven. And you're actually praying about a disciplinary issue of a brother or sister who refuses to uh, repent. So this passage teaches, obviously, there are times when you have to break off fellowship from someone, you have to separate from someone, and even consider them to be a Gentile and tax gatherer, a heathen, because they will not respond to the voice of God. Now that gets real tricky if it starts connecting to family. But we'll talk about that a little later. Now the second reference that brings up this point is Romans 16. Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Here is a mandate that's given to us from the Lord. The mandate that's given to us, by the way, in Romans, which is the gospel of God, is there comes times when you see somebody that is contrary to the true teaching of the word of God, causing dissensions, contrary to the true teaching of the word of God, you break fellowship. You may have to cut that, uh, separate oneself from that type of person because that person is not going to lead anybody into a closer walk with God or love for the word of God. A third text, of course, is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and particularly verse 11, and again, the idea is you're cutting off fellowship from a non-repentant, consistent, habitual sinner who just goes on in sin, regardless of what you say or think. In 1 Corinthians 5, 11, we read, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if... He should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That is cutting off, uh, that's separating from someone who's a brother, or says he's a brother, and persist in a sinful uh, state. The fourth passage is Second Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, we read in verse 14, And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, what do we learn from these passages? Here's what we learn. We learn that there are times, there are times when if we are going to do what's right before God, we cannot just be this back-slapping, lovey-dovey, Feely good operation that just this total toleration of anything. We have to at times say, Look, the Word of God is clear on this point. You must come in line with the Word of God on this point. We love you enough to tell you that. We love you enough to call you to do that. And if a person persists in saying, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the Word of God says, then we say, You know what? We're going to cut off, we're going to separate ourselves from this kind of individual. Now, when it comes to the actual logistics of doing this, there are five major considerations that we have to think about that are biblical considerations. First of all, there are times when a specific process should be followed. A specific process should be followed. Now, I want you to go to um, Matthew uh, 18 for a moment. I would say, if possible... This ought to be the process you follow if you can. But there will be variables come into play that sometimes will make this process uh, not the right process. But but, but, But I want to begin with this. There are times when a specific process should be followed. And here's the process. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go to him, reprove him in private. I think if the situation lends itself to this type of thing, you go privately first to the person, that sins you found out about the sin, you go to the person privately. Nobody else needs to know about it, and you you just take this discussion man to man, woman to woman, man to woman, whatever the case is. Uh, it's it's a one on one private confrontation. Then, if it gets resolved in the discussion, the person says, "You know what? I was wrong. I'm so sorry." I ask your forgiveness, I'm going to ask God to forgive me, end of discussion. You never repeat it, you never tell another soul, the deal is done. It's sealed there, right there, and left there. But if the person does not repent, then you go to the next step. If he listens to you, you've won your brother, but if he does not listen to you, you take one or two more with you. So now you go from private confrontation to plural confrontation where you take a couple others with you to make the confrontation. I'm assuming if you're in this process, the private confrontation's already been done It didn't get you anywhere. So now you've got to regroup and you've got to take a plural confrontation. Now, this is rare. I mean, I'm just speaking as a, as a pastor in years, years of this business. It, it is rare when you have to do these kinds of things. They do have to be done at times. It's rare. And most of the time, uh, the, the private confrontation typically gets the job done. I don't necessarily, when I've ever had to go to a plural confrontation, just say, okay, well day one didn't work, so now day two we're doing this. Unless something in a time frame would force that issue, I give it time. I would go to the person, try to talk with them, reason with them, give them biblical evidence, challenge them to get in light of scripture, and then pray with them and give it some time. I don't don't just say, well, let's Let's take two or three people there tomorrow and get right in the guy's face or lady's face. See what the Spirit of God will do in a process of time. And if in time, the person says, you know what, I've thought that over and and you're right in that, uh, praise God, that's, that's a done deal. Now, over time, if you don't get that response, though, and the person persists in the same vein of problem or sin, then you've got to take another one or two with you, so now you go to a plural confrontation. If that doesn't work, then we see in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church, now you go public. So now you have to announce to the the whole church that, uh, that this has gone on. So there are times when that's the specific process that should be followed, and if possible, I think that's a good process to follow. However, That brings me to my second consideration. There are times when a specific process should be avoided. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Now, in this case that is put before us in the book of Corinthians, Paul doesn't say, all right, now we need to get a team, and we need to first go privately confront them, and then we need to plurally confront them, and then then publicly confront them. Here's what he says in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus... When you're assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lot? Clean out the old leaven. Paul jumps over all of the steps of Matthew. And he basically says this sin is at such a noted level in the church of Corinth and in the city that we're going to just jump over all the normal steps of private confrontation, plural confrontation, public confrontation, get them out. You, you cut them out of there right now. Because this thing has gone on long enough. God views the whole church as leavened. He's not going to bless the church until you deal with the issue. So there are times, depending upon what the case is, where you don't always have to say we've got to follow that formula in Matthew, although that's the ideal if you can go through that formula. But if something surfaces of a magnitude that is all of a sudden uh, in your face and it's of a level of a nature that has just been going on and on and on and all of a sudden uh, you're faced with this issue, uh, sometimes you're going to jump over uh, the process and you go to the individual and, and warn them. The third consideration is that when separation is necessary, the entire church should separate itself from the individual. I mean, if it gets to this level, the entire church should back it up. Let me show you where I get that. 2 Thessalonians. Now, Paul is addressing the entire church of Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I want you to notice verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, we command you, command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof, from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tra- tradition which you receive from us. And then drop down to verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Paul makes an assumption that the entire church would follow through on that. I mean, he's basically saying, look, I'm commanding the whole church. If it gets to this level that, that this has to be done then the church needs to back it up and the church needs to stand strong. Uh, And we're not talking here about a a leadership that's a gestapo, that's that's out on the the, uh, sneaking around uh, your backyard or sneaking around your house just trying to figure out any time you stub your toe. We're talking about major sin issues that surface. And these uh, will surface on occasion from time to time. We're talking about having to deal with real sin issues that surface. The way I see it in the Word of God is if you're working on your own life in the Scriptures, you never have to worry about anything we're talking about. Because if you judge yourself, you won't be judged. So if you're analyzing your life and you're trying to make adjustments and you're asking the Lord for help and you're saying, yeah, i got work to do here and... Uh, I I could be a little stronger there. Then that's good. That's a good thing to be. You're never going to fall into this trap. We're talking about major sin issues now that all of a sudden reach almost an epic proportion where the leadership is forced to make a decision and say there's got to be a separation made here because this is a cancer that we have to get out. Now the fourth uh, consideration is when separation is necessary, the entire church should pray for the individual. I want you to go to 1 John 5. 1 John 5. We read in 1 John 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, this is a, a, a command uh, that that. He should make a request, of, should pray for a brother uh, that is caught in a sin or a sister that's caught in a sin. And it makes it very clear there's a sin line you cross and it's a you get the physical death penalty. That's what it's talking about. In certain mysterious sins that people cross certain lines, God says, that's it. You're coming out of the world. And, uh, and all sin is unrighteousness. But not all sin gets that kind of uh, judgment of the Lord. But if we know that Uh, there is sin, then our responsibility becomes certainly that of praying uh, for the one who is in sin. The fifth consideration is that when there's been true repentance uh, determined uh, by the elders, it becomes their responsibility to move the process toward restoration. Now I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to have to stop here tonight, but this gets fascinating. We're going to look at this, Lord willing, next Wednesday more. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and notice uh, verse 6. Uh, you have a Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, "...sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority." So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, as I understand it, this is the same guy Paul says, get him out of the church a year and a half earlier. It's the same guy that he says, you get that leaven out of there. Apparently, uh, what happened in that Corinthian church is when they got the guy out of the church, God's heavy hand was on him, He was miserable and he repented. He really came to terms with it. To the point that now Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Okay, I've watched him. He has repented. There's been some time. We've seen the change. Welcoming back in. Uh, Welcoming back in and taking back into the church and and fellowship uh, with him again. So the separation uh, was until there could be the restoration. I do not believe that the primary purpose of separation is restoration. I believe the primary purpose of separation is the purity of the church. And I base that on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, get the leaven out. There will be people say, and I read this all the time in doctrinal statements, the primary purpose of discipline is the restoration. I don't believe that for one second. The primary purpose of the discipline is the purity of the church. If you, can get rest, if you can get repentance and if you can establish there's been true repentance, then you want to move it toward restoration. And I also believe that the elders of the church will have a sense about this when it happens. And I'll tell you one story that can prove my point, and we'll close with this. Years ago in our first church, one morning I got to my office, and I have, my habit is to get to the office early. It's been a habit all my life, life in ministry. And a lady was sitting there in uh, her car weeping, who was a member of our church. And uh, so I walked over to the car. She was waiting for me when I got there early in the morning. And I walked over to the car. and said, what's wrong? Can I help you? She said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. So she came into the church, and uh, and she said, uh, I just found out last night my husband is a homosexual. And I said, that's a pretty serious allegation. How do you know this is true? She said, because he brought his homosexual friends to our house last night and tried to convince me that it was okay. Well, this man had actually stood in our church uh, and had testified that uh, he, was, uh, he was a believer and he was not practicing in any known sin. So I said, where's your husband now? She said, he's on the road. I said, when will he be home? She said, he'll be home tonight. I said, when he gets home, myself and another elder or two will be there at your home. When he came in to the house, he came in and we immediately confronted him. He said, well, pastor, what are you doing here? I said, we're here to confront you with your immoral sin. And he broke down and he started weeping. He isn't weeping because he's repenting. He's weeping because he's caught. Uh, it, had he been truly repentant, we would have had a sense about that, but he's weeping because he got caught. And so we told him, we said, you have, you have sinned against God in an abominable way. You have sinned against your dear wife in a a way, and you've sinned against the entire church of God. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to demand that you be held accountable for this, and we're not going to just broadcast this to the church at this point, but what we want to do is we want to set up a meeting with you, and it'll be on Saturday afternoon because we're going to determine how we're going to move you out of this evil sin to a way that is righteous before the Lord. Well, the Saturday meeting was set up. The elders were there waiting at the church, and of course he didn't come. He fled the scene, and he went off on his own way. About uh, a week or two later, we decided we have to go public with this because this is a reproach to the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, uh, we publicly cut off fellowship from this brother. Uh, he said he was a brother. We asked the people to pray. We delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of, of the flesh. About a month goes by, and I'm in my study, and I get a call from a pastor in Indianapolis. And this pastor in Indianapolis says, I understand that you uh, excommunicated this brother from the church. I said, yes, we did. And he said, well, could you tell me why we did that? I said, he's an immoral sin. That's why we did that. He said, well, I'll tell you. He's been down here in our church, and he said, and we can just see that he's really come around and that he's really walking now close with the Lord. I said, I don't believe you. And, uh, and he says, well, why don't you believe me? And I said, I'm a pastor. I counsel with people. I said, I'll tell you why I don't believe you. Because God surfaced that sin in this church. We have handled this right according to the word of God. If this brother is truly repentant, then he needs to get back here to this church and hold himself accountable and make this matter right, which I don't see he's doing. He's on the run. And I don't think he's repentant at all. Well, this happened like on a on a Thursday on a Thursday night, he called me. The, fa- the next night, on a Friday night, uh, I get a call one, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and he had been arrested in Chicago for soliciting a male police officer in a men's restroom. And I tell you this story because of this reason. I believe that when God surfaces the sin in the church, he expects the church to deal with the sin. And I believe when the person is truly repentant of the sin, those that are involved in the process will have a sense it's good, it's clean, it's over. And we can now restore the brother. And not one of our elders had any sense that this guy was uh, repentant and he wasn't repentant. By the way, from the woman's side, I'll just tell you the postscript of the story. We said to the woman, we'll stand right with you. You have three, four options. You can divorce him and we'll stand right with you if, if you do it. You could uh, choose to separate from him and see what happens. Uh, You could try to take him back. It's your call, whatever you decide to do. And She said, well, you know, Pastor, I'm just fearful of of AIDS. And she said, I want nothing to do with this. I said, we'll stand right with you as a church. So God brought a wonderful man into her life. She divorced him. Uh, As far as I know, she's living a wonderful, uh, happy life, and that's how that story ended. But uh, the separation that we handled was right before the Lord, I believe that when a church carries this out biblically, a church is honored by the Lord, and also the process, the people of God will know, the, the leaders will know, because God surfaced it to them that this person has truly repented, now we can welcome them back. All right, any questions or comments about uh, what I've uh, covered with you tonight?